guys have any idea how hard it is to follow baptism in cute pictures of kids? It is really tough. Well, we are continuing this week in our Mark series. I really am excited to walk through this text with you. You know, as a church family, we've been in the book of Mark now for months. And all of it has been leading to this moment, this final week of Jesus' life on earth. Sometimes we call it Holy Week, but this is a time where Mark zooms in. We move a little bit slower, and we just take in all of these details. What did Jesus say? How did he interact? What did he do in these final days? Holy Week begins with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and that happened, we talked about that two weeks ago, and it ends with his resurrection, which is about a week later. And so we're going to jump in this morning. As we do, I want to just remind you Mark's purpose in writing us this gospel. We said this a number of times as we've been walking through the text, but Mark's purpose in writing this gospel is not to just tell us about Jesus. It's not just to inspire us with who Jesus is. Mark is trying to get us to answer the question for ourselves, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to me? And what does it mean for my life? Like this is the aim. And this morning, as we walk through these final days, we see that all of us must answer this question in some way. And the characters in our story today, they also answer this question in their own way. So a couple weeks ago, we had this moment, it was this 14er experience where Jesus was atop the Mount of Olives. Do you guys remember? There he was, he was looking down upon Jerusalem. This was the beginning of our Holy Week, and he walked towards Jerusalem. We started shouting Hosanna back and forth here in the sanctuary. Do you guys remember that? And then last week, we experienced the flipping of tables. Jonathan tossed the table, and it was just like happened when Jesus walked into the temple, and he overthrows this table in protest and in rebuke of this broken temple system. I mean, he's really going after the religious leaders in this moment, and it has made quite the scene, and not just here at Pulpit Rock. This is what everyone is talking about. There are people who are so angry with the words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth that they are ready to kill him. They're plotting right now in these moments, and they're going to succeed in just a few days. And there's a whole other group of people who are so enamored with Jesus, who are so awe-inspired by this man and what he's saying and what he's doing, that everyone is following, trying to get a little glimmer, trying to get just a glimpse, a little taste of what he has to say. This is what everyone is talking about in Jerusalem. And as we pick up this story, I do want to just slow us down. And offer this word of caution. It's an amazing narrative. I mean, this is so compelling. And Jesus in these pages is breathtaking. Like just the things that he says and the things that he does. And it's really, really easy to get so swept up in that story that we make this mistake. That that we receive it just as a story. That we're just inspired by it. Rather than see ourselves reflected in the text. And here's what I believe. That there is something for you in this story, that it wasn't just written for then, but it is for us today. And so I want to challenge you as we enter in, as we kind of walk through, what is it that you believe about what Jesus is saying? How do you feel about the words that he speaks? What do you believe about Jesus? So this morning, as we turn to Mark 11, I just want to set up the scene Jesus is returning to the temple where he just was the day before. 
He's returning to the scene where he just cleared it and overthrew tables. And as you can imagine, the religious leaders have some questions for Jesus. And so the scene opens with them questioning him. It continues with a number of groups starting to kind of ask all these questions in in an effort to trap Jesus in his words and turn the people and to turn Rome against him. Then Jesus shares this parable. It makes everyone so angry that it cements the deal about killing Jesus. This This is the final nail in the coffin. And then he closes the scene today just condemning the hypocrisy and the abuse of power. And he has some really challenging words. And so as we jump in, there's a lot here, but we're going to be in Mark 11, verse 27. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Uh, And I'm reading this morning from the ESV version. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But but shall we say from man? I mean, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. (laughs) You can imagine this scene, right? Jesus and his disciples show up. They're approached by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the three parties that together form the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. These are the ones who are in charge. They're the, the, the ones responsible for all temple business and everything that's happening. And they come to Jesus with this legitimate question. Who gave you authority and permission to do what you just did yesterday? I mean, imagine for a moment if someone jumped on stage and started throwing tables. I mean, if you were here last week, you don't have to imagine too hard, right? But it would be crazy if someone walked in from outside, it came up on stage right now, started rebuking like the leaders of Pulpit Rock and Pulpit Rock and came over to the baptism and turned it over and threw water. I mean, we'd go, what is happening There'd be some questions. Who, who told you that was okay to just jump on stage and start talking like that? And in human terms, the Sanhedrin, they were the ones who gave permission. This was, was their deal. And you can bet they did not sign off on what had just happened the day before. Now we, as readers of the Gospel of Mark these last few months, we know the answer to the question, don't we? By what authority do you do these things? We know that Jesus' authority comes from heaven. It was given to him by God himself. But here Jesus does something that is so beautiful. Instead of just answer the question, say, well, it's from heaven. God gives me the authority. He forces them to answer the question for themselves. Like, it's subtle, but do you see it here? He forces them to answer the question the same way that Mark is doing for us this whole time. He says, if they truly believe that John was a prophet, and most of them did, then they would have to admit that what John said about Jesus was also true, that Jesus' authority came from heaven, that it came from God. And they even admit as much in their dialogue with one another. They wrestle, they consider for a moment, then they decide to act to kind of defend their position, and they just say, "Uh, uh, we, we we don't know. And Jesus says, then I won't tell you. 
And by answering their question, Jesus essentially says to them, it doesn't matter who I say that I am. It matters who you say that I am. It doesn't matter who I say that I am. It matters who you say that I am. You know, we can know a lot about Jesus without really knowing him. Like, we've seen that, right? There, there are people following Jesus now for all sorts of reasons. There was plenty to revere. There was plenty to be inspired by. He was an incredible teacher with incredible authority and knowledge of these prophetic writings. I mean, universally today, we would say Jesus is revered as just a humanitarian and a historical figure. There's lots to know about Jesus. There's lots to follow without believing that Jesus is who he said he is. And here Jesus presses. He wants them to believe that he was more than just a great rabbi, that he was more than just a great teacher, that he was the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of scripture in every sense of the word. And he brings it home in this parable. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. But he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to him saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Remember from last week, Jesus is looking at the temple, he's looking at the fig tree, things that have the appearance of fruit, things that ought to bear fruit, but they don't. There's no fruit to be found. God plants this vineyard. He entrusts it to them. And when he came for the fruit, there was none. And so Jesus paints a picture of the prophets that came before that were rejected and that were killed. A picture of a God who is in relentless pursuit of his people, who against better judgment sends his beloved son. Jesus continues, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I mean, wow. We shouted back and forth just a couple weeks ago, Hosanna comes from a passage in Psalm 118, and here Jesus uses that same passage, and he says, I am the fulfillment of that psalm. He refers to himself, this Jesus standing before them, he is the beloved son. And he says, I am the stone that you rejected. I have come to tear down all of what is broken, and as the cornerstone, make it new again, and it will be for all people. You know what? 
Over and over in Mark, as we've been following along, Jesus would use these parables in an effort to kind of obscure some of the truth. That one of the reasons he spoke in parables was there were some that were ready to hear and listen and others that didn't. But what's so fascinating to me here in Mark's final parable, there was no mistaking the message. This was not some obscured truth. And Jesus goes so far as to just affirm the Sanhedrin's suspicion that the parable was about them. And he even tells them they're going to kill him, something they had already begun plotting to do. It's crazy. There's so much just in that, right? But Jesus has more to say. The Sanhedrin leave angry, and they send four different groups of people to start to question Jesus. And the the effort here was to trap him, to turn people against him, to turn Rome against him, to find anything that he says that would be a reason to remove him. And Jesus answers their questions one by one. The text reads that at one point, no one wanted to ask any more questions. None had any left. And then Jesus turns and begins to speak to them. And we're going to talk about these and kind of walk through, but the big idea that I want you to see as we wade into a few of these exchanges is that Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is unlike all of the other traditions. Jesus is unlike the Herodians or the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the Zealots or the scribes. He is completely different, and his authority isn't coming from his role as a rabbi and the way he's kind of followed this tradition, but his authority comes from somewhere else. And in every example, Jesus doesn't just give information. He doesn't just answer the question. He gets to the heart of the question. He gets to the heart of the person asking. And so I want you to follow along. And this week, read on your own, Mark 12, verses 13 through 37. There's a lot there. But first, this group comes to Jesus, the Herodians. And the first question they have is about taxes. It seems like a weird thing to kind of get to try to trap Jesus, but it's this politically charged question that is a no-win situation. The Jews were required to pay a yearly tax to Rome, and among all of the people there, there was all sorts of different beliefs about what they should do. There's a group that really believed that they should pay their taxes. There was a group that refused to pay taxes and were kind of political rebels for doing so. There was another group that paid them, but paid them like, you know, under objection. But here, Jesus asked to see a coin. He takes this no-win situation and he says, whose image is on this coin? Someone says Caesar's. And Jesus just says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Again, it's subtle, but I want you to see what Jesus does here. Instead of falling to the either or trap, he gets to the heart of the matter. And he turns this question about specific obedience to paying taxes, and he turns it into a question about whose image that they bear and what it means for them to follow God. He says, the coin, it bears Caesar's image. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You, you bear God's image. Give to him what is his. It's beautiful. It's incredible. And then the Sadducees, another group, come, and they start asking Jesus questions about the resurrection. And they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in it. You're right, Thomas. That killed. (laughs) 
These Sadducees, they, they come to him and they ask him this question about the resurrection. They, they were so learned in, in the Old Testament, but they concluded that the Old Testament didn't teach about it. Here, Jesus, again, is so winsome. He doesn't just make this theological argument and build a case, but he appeals to the very character and the very being of God. He says he's the God of the living, not the dead. And if all God's people are destined to perish and to remain dead, then in what sense is he the God of the living? He was forcing them to wrestle with and determine what they believed about the character of God. It's incredible. So finally a scribe comes and asks Jesus this question about what is most important. The greatest commandment. And Mark gives us a clue that, that maybe the scribe, after listening to this exchange, to the way in which Jesus answered all these questions, that he may not have asked the question out of a challenge in this attempt to trap Jesus, but because he really wanted to know. But here, there were 613 commands in the Mosaic Law. Can you imagine trying to memorize 613 different things to do? And so all the time, there was debate about which was the most important. And out of these 613, which were the primary and, and which were the ones? And so the rabbis, one of the things that they would do, each rabbi, they'd formulate these principles in an effort to interpret and kind of walk people through the law. But the question essentially was, what is God most concerned with? Jesus, which law of all of these is most important? What do we need to make sure we don't mess up and don't get wrong? In Mark 12, verse 29, Jesus answered. He says, The most important is hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus gives two commandments. He indicates that our love for one another, it comes out of our love for God. They're impossible to separate. He says that our love for God, it drives our love for one another. And he takes all of these 613 commands, he distills them down to two things. We love God with all our will, our emotions, our mind, our bodies, and we love our neighbor. And for the Jews, this meant not just fellow Jew, Jews. The word neighbor here, it was all of mankind. We love all of mankind as we would ourselves. He takes all of the Mosaic Law and distills them down into these two things. But more importantly, he takes this question about specific obedience to law as a means to please God, and he flips it on its head. He says, we please God by loving him. We please God by loving others. And it describes their question. It illuminates this, the major difference between Jesus and everyone else that was there asking him questions. Jesus tells us that doing the will of God is loving him and loving our neighbor. And for all of these religious authorities and, and leaders, it was strict adherence to law and to tradition. Just tell us this one law that we can't miss. Which of the 613 are most important? And Jesus says, no, loving God, and loving your neighbor. He uses the scriptures. 
He uses his knowledge of the prophetic writings to justify and defend his actions. And he demonstrates over and over that his authority, it doesn't come from a specific tradition, but from God. He uses the authority of God's word. And he builds a case for how he was the promised Messiah that the scriptures foretold. And you know what? Mark records that the crowd's response was overwhelmingly positive. This was good news. And even while the Israel's leaders are struggling and they're challenging, Jesus is here clearing a way for everyone to have access to God. Not just the select few in the innermost courts of the temple. He's making a way for everyone. It's good news. It's good news for you and it's good news for me. The religious leaders condemned and they questioned him because he did not fit their ideas of a Messiah. And Jesus shows them that the Old Testament, it presented a different Messiah than the one they wanted. And now the tables turn and Jesus begins to condemn them. And there at the end of the text, you see that his condemnation, it was was about their hypocrisy, their religious hypocrisy. It was about their lack of fruit. But in a bigger sense, his condemnation was this. There was a system in which people were told that their poverty and that their sickness was because of their unbelief and their inability to uphold the law. And that the way to please God was to bring offerings and to bring sacrifices and to bring money to the temple. Offerings and sacrifices and money that would line the pockets of the religious leaders who were instructing them to do it. And it was never what God had intended. This was not the system. This was not the way that he meant it to be. And in addition to all of their religious hypocrisy, he comes down after them for their abuses of power. And there are all sorts of things happening in this time, especially with widows. I read this commentary about some of the practices of the day and ways they were cheating widows and exploiting people all under the skies of this is what it means to please God. There was crazy inequity. And Jesus, at one point in the text, says, you devour widows' houses. In the final days, Jesus calls out and says what no one was willing to say to the most powerful and influential people of all of Israel. He takes his last final breaths, condemning and calling out what no one was willing to. This is our Jesus. He's bringing the kingdom to earth. He's tearing down systems of injustice and inequity, systems that keep people from God, systems that do not bear fruit. And at the close of Mark 12, Jesus draws his disciples together and he points their attention to this widow who's giving her offering. I always heard this verse taught as as just an example of generosity, of how the widow gave out of her lack rather than her abundance. And Jesus does commend her generosity and her piety. But I think given the context of what we just read, Jesus is also pointing out this broken temple system. And he uses the widow as an example. Rather than be looked after and taken care of as she should have been, this widow is giving money out of her poverty to this temple as she's been told to do. Money that promises favor, money that promises blessing, money that promises to please God and money that will continue to provide material wealth to the religious elite. Money that will ensure she remains in a place of poverty when she surrenders it to the temple. And this is part of what Jesus came to tear down. 
This is something he promises to make new. That his coming was to create access for everyone. You know, it's this compelling picture of Jesus, right? Like he really is breathtaking. What he's willing to do, what he's willing to risk, what he's willing to say, the ways in which he says it. And I think it's comfortable to see ourselves at a distance from the religious leaders of the day. I wonder what Jesus would say to us. You know, in these last moments, he's very concerned by the abuse of power and for those who have been abused. And because Jesus takes so much time to address it, it's something we should probably pay attention to. And I think there's two legitimate ways we can pay attention to that. There's two legitimate things that we can do as we notice what Jesus is doing in these moments. And I've been asking myself, what, what is what we've seen about Jesus mean for you? And what does what we've seen about Jesus mean for me? Because it has to be more than just observing what Jesus is doing. It means something for us. And I think one direction to go is we look at these verses about Jesus walking into the temple courts, calling out injustice and abuse of power, and we look for ways to follow his example to do the same. I think that's a legitimate way to kind of follow the text, to participate in the same sort of remaking and restoring and to be his voice and his heart and his hands and his feet, to confront evil we see in the world. There's something about Jesus where we say, isn't he amazing? Let's go do the same. And I think that is his invitation to us, right? I see that already in a lot of you. I, I truly do. I see your heart to do it. I see the way that you are the types of activists that Jonathan described last week, people who throw tables and confront injustice in the spaces where God has led you to inhabit. Like, this is your heart. It's my heart. And as I read the text, you know, I, I want to put myself next to Jesus. I picture myself with him, following him, but what if just as an exercise for a moment, we imagined ourselves face to face with him instead? You see, the other way to consider this text and to follow it is, is to just recognize that there's one way that we have to confront ourselves before we can confront the world around us. You know, there's something in the hypocrisy and the lack of fruit found in the temple and among the religious leaders that we would be foolish not to pay attention to for ourselves. You know, in addition to pointing us to Jesus, the text, it invites us to acknowledge in ourselves the same capacity for all of the hypocrisy, the same capacity for all of the abuse of power, the same capacity for all of the injustice that Jesus spoke against. To confess that I can be complicit, that I can play a part, that I create obstacles that keep people from Jesus with my judgment, with my expectations of their behavior. To admit that what Jesus was fighting against was not just some ancient Jewish custom or temple system, but he's fighting against the same thing today. It still happens today. And all of that capacity lives within me. And if we are unwilling to acknowledge and to confront in ourselves that reality, then we will forever continue to perpetuate the same sorts of things again and again. And part of the invitation to follow Jesus, to confront the world around us, is to first confront ourselves. You know, as I was thinking about this in our Mark study guides, if you have that, there's this beautiful quote by Henry Nouwen. 
and it's from his book, Compassion, he talks about this idea that, that compassion requires honest and direct confrontation. Quote says this, honest, direct confrontation is a true expression of compassion. As Christians, we are in the world without being of it. It is precisely this position that renders confrontation both possible and necessary. The illusion of power must be unmasked. Idolatry must be undone. Oppression and exploitation must be fought. And all who participate in these evils must be confronted. This is compassion. We cannot suffer with the poor when we are unwilling to confront those persons and systems that cause poverty. We cannot set the captives free when we do not want to confront those who carry the keys. We cannot profess our solidarity with those who are oppressed when we are unwilling to confront the oppressor. Compassion without confrontation, it faces quickly into fruitless, sentimental commiseration. And this also is the work of the kingdom, amen, that I allow it to be brought to bear in me, not just through me. You know, the kingdom have, of heaven has come crashing to earth. And, and one of the things that's so amazing about Jesus in this last week is we are watching heaven come barreling down to earth through Jesus. And we're watching in what he says and in what he does. He is bringing the kingdom of heaven. And it continues with us that the invitation to follow Jesus means we also get to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. But it also continues in us that there's a remaking and a restoring that happens in me until one day when he comes again and finishes what was started and when all is made new. And so if you believe these words of Jesus, if you believe that he is who he says he is in these pages, and I just want to invite you to listen carefully to his words in these final days. Part of the invitation to follow him means we are willing to confront in ourselves the things that he spoke against, the things that he is working to redeem and remake. And so I thought this morning it would be fitting to close with the sort of corporate confession. And this isn't a practice we do a lot of, but I just thought in light of this, that this, this fits. So what I want to do is just put some words on the screen. And I want to invite you to just take a minute while you're seated and just read this confession to yourself. For our close this morning... I wanted to invite you to stand. And if this resonates with you in any way, to just invite you to read it aloud with me. So I want to invite everyone to stand. I don't want you to feel pressure to, to read out this confession if it doesn't fit with where you are, where your heart is. But if it does, if this resonates for you, I want to invite you just to follow me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.